Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Today, we have a very very good guest. I think that he's going to be able to contribute a lot of value. He's been around the block a few times, and uh, he's also one of the most active angel investors. So, Will Herman, welcome. Welcome today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. I was very excited to have you on the show because typically we interview founders that have had uh, quite a success, at least with one transaction, but you've had success with several transactions. So, how many companies have you built and exited by now? I've uh, I've started five companies, um, but two of them end up to be miserable failures, total crash and burn, lose all your money kind of failures. Um, three pretty big successes, though, two uh, IPOs, um, and actually both those companies were subsequently sold, as well as the uh, the third company I'd started. Got it. So what, was it always a strategy, really, to um, to build those companies and sell them? Uh, no, funny enough, I never thought about exits when when I started companies. Uh, it's uh, I, I think that actually clouds your ability to execute well. And you know, I, I just always thought that hey, we'll build we'll build a cool company, we'll build a great company here, and we'll see how it goes. And exits a possibility, but it might just be fun along the way. Um, so I never really thought about it, but. Um, you know, the exits themselves obviously bring their own rewards. Absolutely. So so tell us about your story. How did you get started with the entrepreneurial bug? Uh, that's a, <laughs> so I, uh, I was in I was in college and I was uh, I was studying mechanical engineering and I uh, I ran a, ran into my first uh, software development class and. I just thought, wow, you mean I don't have to be the hundred millionth person to prove Newton's third law? I can actually do things the way that I want to do them. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was it was uh, somewhat difficult to get computing resources. And I would sneak in the labs and I would uh, and I write some software. I write some, you know, an app to do this, programs to do that. And uh, and then after my. Uh, my sophomore year in college, I applied to dozens of places for a job. You know, who's going to take a completely inexperienced kid in college? Um, and I got a job at a startup, uh, which I had never even heard of a startup before. I didn't know what it was. Right. And I joined the startup um, as a low-level coding, you know, hack. And I got the bug, bug, and I actually quit school. I didn't go back to school then. I went back later. Um, but um, once I started there and saw the, the freedom, the, the Wild West freedom of startups, I, I couldn't leave it. Got it. I mean, that freedom is pretty amazing. I remember back in the days for me when, you know, before becoming an entrepreneur, I was, I was an attorney. And, uh, I mean, it's a really crazy switch of, of careers, but... Yeah. But corporate America is just a completely different beast. But but anyway, say uh, will talk to us about View Logic Systems because I understand that was your uh, first significant exit. Yes. So um, so I was a co-founder of View Logic. Um, one of five of us. Five of us started the company. Um, it's a uh, software company that did uh, essentially CAD for electrical engineering. So um, 
you know, basically like any CAD tool. The CAD tool markets are 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 not monstrous and they're very competitive generally dominated by by just a handful of companies um we came in we thought we had some um interesting unique ideas um we struggled to get funding we just struggled it took us a year after we uh, started writing code and writing business plans and getting our our acts together um to get our first check which was just $50,000 um, it was a contingent deal that said, okay, we'll give you $50,000. Now we'll do a little bit more if you reach certain milestones in the next, uh, in the next handful of months. Um, which we did. We did, but it was, uh, it was, it was living hand to mouth. It was, it, well, we weren't paying ourselves. We were, you know, writing code around the clock. It, you know, sort of a typical garage startup story. Yeah. Uh, we were hardly unique. Um, but we were very successful, and um, we—it's uh, not so much we had better technology than anyone. We just had a better delivery mechanism. We were on different platforms. We we looked at the market differently. We priced a little differently. We were the new guys on the block with some unique characteristics. Um, we took the company public after uh, seven years, seven pretty successful years, and then a few years later, we sold it ultimately for about half a billion dollars. Nice, nice. So, so I guess uh, going back to the to the early days. So you mentioned you were five co-founders. You know, I I actually uh, this is a topic that that is is close to my heart because the the last business that I exited was a one one piece of it was co-founders lab, which the co-founder matchmaking was a really big component. And just talking about numbers, what what was your experience with having five co-founders? Because that's a lot of egos to manage. Yeah, and in fact, it didn't entirely work out great. There was, you know, uh, uh, you know, w without without any hubris here, the the I'll say that the the team was very good. Not none of us were, you know, were the best at anything that we did. We just. Um, as a team, we worked very hard, and and we worked for a year before we got funding and 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 stuck together. You know how hard that is. It's yeah. under the stresses there. Uh, a few years after we um, uh, we got it going, though, um, the board our board pushed us hard to upgrade in certain areas. Um, I didn't really like the idea. Um, but we did, and a couple of the um, uh, two of the team left left the company at that time. Um, we also, uh, because it took us so long and was so difficult to get funding, we ended up getting diluted quite a bit. Right. Uh, and when you know, at the end of the game, we owned a very small percentage of the um, of the company. Got it. Got it. Got it. So. So I guess in, you know, one of the things now, obviously now people are talking about doing IPOs is, is like the new down round and that is sexier <laughs> to stay private. But, but back then, I mean, the thing was to do the, um, the IPO. So I guess that from your experience, I mean, there's like a ton of reporting and, you know, being public is completely different. So how did you manage that transition from private to public? Yeah, funny the reporting the reporting um, challenges were not that big a deal. We, I mean, we of course e even at the time we were we we had heard oh my god it's just so difficult and and you become more quarterly focused and we were already a pretty quarterly focused company. Um, it was certainly a pain in the ass to have to go visit large shareholders and do you know fly to New York and. And um, 
uh, do quarterly meetings and things like that. That took a lot of time away from um, from day-to-day running of the business. Um, you, you, you hire a few people to help, and you 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 make sure you get it to work. The biggest transition is actually the um, going from and going from private to public. In my opinion, especially in a, in the startup world, is that you know most of the people in start. <coughs> excuse me. Most of the people in startups get equity, and um, very few people actually do the math on what their equity is worth. Um, they don't know how many shares there are outstanding. They don't know the capitalization of the company, and everybody thinks they're going to be a multimillionaire on a uh, on an exit. And right. um, uh, you know, th- the difference between being acquired and going public is when you go public, you be- you're you're an ongoing company. You are running the exact same company with the exact same goals, um, with the exact same people. No changes. You're just public now, and uh, and then people finally saw that their you know their stock is not worth the tens of millions they thought it was worth, and there's a big shakeup. There's right. it's it's a difficult transition financially for people individually. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And. You know, one of the things that you were pointing to is that, you know, it took you guys a little bit to get the first checks in. And we're talking about years ago. So the angel investing and the online platforms and none of that was was available. But uh, but I guess I guess my question here is what what was the capital structure looking from you know, all the way to the end, like that financing process to 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 keep the business going? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. It made me it made me think a little bit to uh, about this recently. The the um, so we were a venture funded company. We uh, we probably I, you know we 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 had a little bit of debt. Um, we financed receivables over time. Uh, we weren't we were paid um, you know generally they were annual licenses of uh, a software. So a little different than the SaaS model we see today that's so prevalent today. Um, and so we were able to uh, to finance receivables on that when the numbers started getting big. When you've got 150 million, you know, 200 million in revenue, um, uh, you know, just uh, you know, 60 days of DSO can be financed, so you can get the cash in a little earlier. Um, we were also uh, very keen on getting the cash flow positive as early as possible, and it really only took us a few years to get to the cash flow positive. We had a couple of, uh, of rounds of, of venture capital funding in there, only uh, primarily to accelerate growth. Um, and we actually took uh, a big chunk of money, relatively speaking, a big chunk of money late, uh, within a year of us going public, uh, to expand internationally uh, more quickly to develop a direct sales, sales force internationally. Um, so that was basically it. I mean, it was venture capital funded company primarily, a little teeny bit of debt, uh, you know. But uh, but that was it. Got it. So how much? Uh, how much during this uh, during this journey? How much of your time did you actually dedicate it to the to the capital raising efforts? Yeah. Well, as you know, up front, early on, the first few years, it was big chunks of time. I, it's. I, I would say, you know, well, in our first year, it was at least half our time. Um, uh, you know, after that, it starts to drop, especially as you, if you're moving towards cash flow, uh, cash flow positive position, um, to, uh, you know, maybe a couple of months worth of time in the second year and then dropping down to, uh, 
um, you know, to weeks and maybe a month in the third and then going cash flow positive. Um, so it, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of time, it's, especially when you're a small team. It's a, yeah. it's a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. So I guess the, um, the next thing that comes to mind is, so you did an exit of the, of Ulogic systems. It was acquired by Synopsys and, and you were talking about, you know, some of the, some of the terms earlier, but, but, how did this acquisition come about? Uh, it's uh, so so at one point uh, we were looking at the future. You know, every every few months we would sit down as a team, the management team, and we'd uh, try to take you know try to get ourselves out of the day to day running of the business and say strategically where are we going here? And we we saw that we were leading the curve in many many areas, um, but. Uh, things were <clears throat> things were changing. The techno underlying technology was changing. We had to stay ahead, and it was a time to either get an infusion of capital, um, or potentially, you know, look at an exit. And I went to my board and I said, "Look, I think we should go explore. You know, we can. We know we can raise the capital. It's no problem. We were a very profitable company at the time, still growing very quickly, and." Uh, uh, but I said, let's let's go check on um, on what it's worth to to uh, to our competition here. And we hired a banker, but really the connection I had all the connections. Small number of companies in the business, half a dozen. I knew all the CEOs already, and I started making phone calls, talking to them about strategically where the industry was going and what we could do together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, a few of them. Uh, of them showed interest. And then I started, of course, playing them against one another. So, and the, the amount of money that came on the table got so high that it was very difficult for us to walk away from it. Of course. It's a, it's interesting that process because, you know, typically, and, and I'm sure that you, that you advise to your founders, uh, the ones that are in your portfolio, but, but typically companies are bought not sold. So during these discussions, how were you able to approach it so that it didn't look as, as you guys were selling, but perhaps, you know, exploring if an acquisition would make sense? Yes. Yeah, good question. The, the, um, <clears throat> yeah, we never put a sale on the table. The idea was always, you know, some of this is trans, some of this is hardly transparent, but, but, um, uh, some of it is what can we do together? Um, right. you know, uh, it's, it's, we, we need to put, we need to put so much technology to, at play here. Perhaps there's something we can do in a joint venture type of thing, which was not foreign in our business, joint ventures. Uh, and, uh, it was more of an exploration of where things could go. This is, this is, as I said, this is slightly veiled. Um, but you know, you don't want to throw yourself on the, on the, uh, you know, uh, you know, on the altar, you want to you want to try to make to work from a, a hand of power. And we did have power because we were the leader in many areas. But also there were other companies bigger than us. So what can we do together? It's, you know, pretty straightforward. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. So I guess that uh, from from this exit, what was the biggest lesson? Um, <laughs> so the biggest lesson I have from it is. Uh, you want really good people who know what you don't know on your side of the table. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, specifically, 
our lawyers were instrumental in having a good deal get done. It was, I mean, we had never done a deal this size. We had done a bunch of M&A. We had acquired companies along the way, but they were small, small companies, a handful of million dollars or some stock. And uh, this was a big deal. And it was our baby. Um, and we had advisors on our, uh, you know, on our side of the table who, who would say, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it that way. Or this is the way you have to go. Or this is what they're really saying over there. And that was that was critical. Got it. Got it. So I guess that uh, as you look back now and, you know, it's easier to to ask this or to say this. But would you would you still make the decision to sell biologic systems? Yes, it, it worked out. It worked out phenomenally well. It's, uh, of course, as you know, there's a longer story here that may, that perhaps we'll talk about. But but it was the right thing for our shareholders. It was the right thing for our employees. It uh, it certainly uh, uh, it was the largest deal done in our industry to that date and actually for some time after that. Um, so it was a good deal. And I think the acquirer um, got a lot out of it, too. Right, right. So the the acquisition was five hundred million. Is that right? A little over five hundred million. Yes. Got it. I mean, just out of curiosity, Will, is there any you know car or apartment that you bought as being you know your first interesting check? Uh, it's. I, I think I bought a car, but that might have used up my entire check. As I said, we were very diluted at the end. <laughs> okay. And and, and 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 keep in mind that that uh, five hundred million was after the IPO. So. I, we even had the dilution from the IPO. So the management team did not own a lot of the company by the time we sold it. Got it, got it. I mean, once a founder, always a founder, right? So after the, the acquisition of Viewlogic Systems, you were involved in a couple of projects. And then, and then you did something that I found it was really interesting. So you got a group and you repurchased the assets of Viewlogic Systems that were acquired by Synopsis. So can you talk to us about this a little bit? Yes, sure, sure. Um, yeah, we we um, after a, a year after the acquisition, we saw that um, most of most of the uh, revenue producing uh, product at ViewLogic wasn't being advanced by Synopsys. They were really focusing on a really on a single product line that was expanding very rapidly. It was an important product line, um, but two thirds, three quarters of the revenue. Um, wasn't being actively worked on. And so we approached Synopsys Management and, uh, and we said, look, we'd like to, we'd like to buy that back. And, um, it's clearly not important for you. And of course, which they denied, but we, you know, we could see what was going on. Yeah. And we negotiated a deal when we, uh, so we, uh, we acquired, um, Probably 75% of the uh, the revenue producing product that we had sold to Synopsys for 500 million a year earlier for about 55 million dollars. Right. So we we basically acquired about 100 110 million of re in revenue for 55 million dollars. Got it. So then so then I guess that. After this, you go on, you have um, Innoveda go, go public, and uh, the company was also acquired in 2002 by Mentor Graphics. So, so what was the process to get to to get this transaction coming together? Yeah, so we we actually we took that 
that 110 million in revenue when we acquired many, uh, several other companies. I say many because it was actually a fairly large number. I think it was eight companies along the way, including um, a public company and did what's called a reverse acquisition. We used their public stock to take us public. Um, uh, it's, it's an IPO, but it's a little, little, uh, little differently done. Um, and we were doing, we were doing well. We didn't have the growth rate of the original view logic, but we still had very nice growth rate and we had some corner, we had some core, uh, uh, some core technology and some core market share that Mentor Graphics was interested in acquiring. And uh, we went pretty much through the same process we had with ViewLogic. We said, okay, we either invest in this thing and put the pedal to the metal, um, or we see if there's somebody out there who's who uh, this might be of even more value to than us. Right. And we went and we talked to uh, actually two companies who were in the space that we were then in, um, in the market. Um, both were interested in acquiring, and we we basically uh, auctioned it auctioned it off. That's that's actually a bad word. It sounds like we did it for the lowest price. We actually did it for the highest price. It ratcheted up the price, as yeah. anybody knows who sells to competitive bidders. Um, and um, and we did a uh, we did a cash deal actually with uh, Mentographics. The previous deal with Synopsis was an equity deal. Um, a cash deal with a uh, mentor that, again, worked out great for our employees and our shareholders. Many of the employees of the company at the time still work for Mentor many years later. So I think that says that's a, it worked out very well for the employees of the company. Got it. So I guess, I guess as you were mentioning, you had um, an auction uh, type of process. And, and I guess that, uh, you know, there you have like a funnel where you push people down and then eventually some of them give you an LOI. And then from there you move into, into the due diligence process. So I guess, I guess at that point where you were about to make a decision on who to move with on the due diligence process, how many bidders did you have? By the time we got to that process, two. Only two, two in that deal. So not in the synopsis deal, we had more, but, but, um, but in that deal, we had two, but two very close. Uh, close companies in the marketplace who pretty much knew everything about each other. So they knew what competitive advantage each, each of the other ones could get. Um, so we were in a good position. And of course, we, 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 we let them know what we could about the other one being, being involved. Got it. So, so when it was the time to actually make a decision with the board and say, okay, we're taking this, uh, this one and go through the due diligence process. Did you do that just with one or did you to a certain degree do it with both? No, we did it. We did it with both. Of course, at some point you have to, you have to give, um, uh, give somebody exclusive, exclusive rights. If you want to get ultimately when you want to get your, your fine, your, your finely tuned deal at the end of the process, you're going to give someone, one of them exclusivity for some period of time. Um, which is only reasonable. It's a it's a trade, and um, but we we wrote it up till the very end, negotiating one against another until one had terms. the The dollar amount was not that different between the two the two offers we had, but the terms of the deal were a bit different, and um, we decided that that those terms were important to us. The terms that Mentor was offering were important to us. 
and we um, so we 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 moved ahead with them, giving them exclusivity. And of course, as you said, we went through due diligence with them, um, which was fairly, uh, which was actually pretty painful um, yeah. at the time. But nothing changed. The deal did not change through due due, due diligence. So, so what was what was the timeline uh, like here? Uh, well, how long did it take from start to finish to closing the deal? Jeez, uh, um, you're pushing my memory here. I would say, uh, I'd say probably four months. Four months. Got four it. months. That was from initial contact through negotiation, through doing all the legal, through due diligence. The um, the acquirer actually ha went and decided to take some debt. Um, to pay us in cash. It was a choice they had. They had the cash on hand, but they wanted to take some debt. So one of the contingencies was that they had time to go and, and raise some public debt. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. Earlier, you were talk we were talking about the, the exclusivity uh, process and, uh, or, or, or time that you need to give. No? Normally, it's anywhere between 30 to 60 days where you get to complete that due diligence and then hopefully you, know, you go into, into starting to do the, the asset purchase and the close. No? But, okay. but, I mean, from personal experience, I will. I mean, for me, the, the exclusivity period is it's quite scary because if the, if the deal falls through, then, then you're literally completely naked. And, and going back to the other one and say, hey, you know, we would like to resume the conversations, you know, they're going to be like, maybe there's something wrong. Why didn't it go through with the other guys? You're, you, oh, I, I, I can't tell you how right I believe you are. <laughs> the, yeah. the, um, there was a time, in fact, uh, during the exclusivity period where the, uh, the acquirer went quiet. And as you know, you have so much experience with this. The during the exclusivity period, generally speaking, there are people in each other's offices. All the paperwork is being dumped out of file cabinets. Every digital copy of everything is being is being um, checked on, and uh, and so usually it's it's a a buzz of activity. And we hit a time when uh, it was a week when when they went totally quiet, and. I, I don't think I slept the entire week because wow. you are, as you said, you are totally exposed if they walk away. And of course, they generally have to find something to break the deal, which companies can force. Um, but it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a, it, it, there are tough times in there. There's no question. You are totally right. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that only the founders that have gone through a transaction of, of, of you know of this of this nature now really understand the the level of stress and how you're put to your literally emotional limits now like uh, with that uncertainty it's crazy yeah you're you're making me relive it again i, I feel it all <laughs> over again <laughs> you're absolutely so right. i guess i guess well i mean something really really interesting and you know we we, we see this quite often with with founders that you know do an exit and you know it's kind of like a a pay-forward mentality to a certain degree, but after doing uh, over 700 million in transactions, you decided to go to to the other side of the table, no? As a as an angel investor, so so how many investments have you have you made so far? Uh, 82, I've made 82 investments, um, and another dozen, uh, probably a couple of dozen funds. So uh, lots more companies in the portfolio that are outside of my control. Okay, and how did you decide to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to maybe make an investment in, 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 in like, become a first-time angel investor? How did that happen? 
I, I didn't set out to do it. They, uh, I, I decided that I was going to sit on boards and help companies get started and advise. And, and um, I never really thought about how to, you know, how to, how, how money played into it. But one of the first company I was, um, I was advising needed to raise money. And I said, well, how about for me? And I wrote a check and that turned out to be a great success. Now it was many years. I, you know, I fully believe that, that, you know, any, any real, really good return in angel investing takes at least a decade. Um, so it was much later. And I started after that, there was, I, I had, um, uh, such a great feeling about, about how to, to, to be actively involved in small businesses without actually having to run one on a day-to-day basis yeah. um, that I started to invest in more companies and, and develop a way to do my kind of due diligence and to, uh, to be active and involved in some and uh, passive in others. Got it. So, I mean, 82 investments is, is quite a, quite a good amount. So I guess now looking back, Will, which one of those investments that you've made in, in this type of companies has been, you know, a company that you've been able to really see the journey from start to finish all the way to the, to the finish line and, and that has been close to your heart? Uh, so many. Um, well, uh, the the most uh, I'll 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 uh, the most interesting journey uh, was Harmonix Music Systems. The uh, the guys who created Rock Band, um, they um, they were they just dogged it out. They uh, they looked like they were going to die all the time, and just kept finding new deals, um, kept making it work, and it gave me and I. And I kept investing. It it kept making me feel like oh, these guys are going to find a way. And it it took over a decade and uh, of uh, of struggling and finding new contracts and developing new games and and uh, and then MTV bought them. Viacom uh, bought them in a huge deal, and uh, and then they did a this this uh, earnout, which I'm usually uh, usually totally scared of earnouts um, that worked out incredibly well. Um, they ended up suing Viacom um, for not paying up and won many court cases to make a lot of money. It's a it's an incredible story. Great founders, terrific investors, um, and you know, and we all made a bunch of money too. So um, it's uh, I guess that's the one that's closest to me because of. Of just sheer work, determination, brains to a lot of, a, a, and a lot of people on the outside who've helped them create that success. That's fantastic. That's such a great story, uh, Will. You know, because as a founder, when you are in it, you know, there's so many days that you think that the world is going to fall apart, and and it's all a matter of just staying long enough to be able to survive and to see, you know, what possibilities, what's possible, no, in in the future. So. So that's great to hear, Will. So, I mean, you've been exposed to so many companies. You are a mentor with uh, very respected uh, uh, organizations like Techstars. So what kind of patterns uh, do you typically recognize on, on those founders that you end up investing in and that perhaps end up being successful? 
Um, well, I don't think, you know, everyone's a little different, but, um, there are, uh, there are four things that I look for. Um, one is founders who are interested in building a great team around them. Um, that's not only co-founders, but that's ultimately the man, the, the total management team that's in the company. Um, that, uh, there's no, there are fewer egos involved in that and that, uh, people and founders who, who know what they don't know are really valuable. So that's point number one. Point number two is, uh, founders that focus on execution, um, not on their idea as much. I, I just don't believe that there are that many unique ideas and that the uniqueness of your idea really isn't that, you know, isn't that important. Um, you know, a good team can, can, execute on a mediocre idea and make it great and make a great company. So I'm, I'm all about execution. That's point two. Point three is, is founders who constantly talk to their real and prospective customers. It's so many, so many startups are building, uh, building products, creating services that are meeting needs in their heads, not actual needs. It's, it's, Ultimately, product lack of product market fit is what kills most startups, and uh, it's not funding. It's lack of product market fit, and so understanding what your customers need, want, and think is uh, is critical. That's three, and four is I'm just an old school hard work guy. The person who works more hours is almost always going to succeed, um, or do better than the person who works fewer hours. I just I just believe in it. I, uh, I believe those who are dedicated to what they're doing and are willing to work their asses off to achieve it have a fundamental advantage. And I love that uh, you're talking about product market fit, Will, because in many instances, founders just go out there raising money to build a machine as opposed to, you know, really raising the money to speed up the machine. But, but I guess from your experience, Will, and, and just for the people that are, that are listening, what does product market fit look like? What does product market fit well look like? So in my, in my view, I suppose there are a thousand definitions of product market fit. In my view, it's that, that there is a real need, um, that a, uh, a large number of people have and that a company has a product that greatly fills that need. And, and it's a problem and a solution. And the solution has to be one that the customer actually recognizes as a solution to their problem. It's less important that the company recognizes they have a solution to somebody else's problem than the customer has it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I love about, about your story, Will, is that you've been a very, very successful. Uh, but one of the things that that you know, I've 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 been very much present to is is how much you've been about as well giving back, the giving back to founders because you've been there, you've done that, and you know how how crazy the journey is. And and one of the things that and you've done this by uh, doing angel investments, you know, and by being a mentor to all of these programs. And more recently, you published the the startup playbook. So can you tell us a little bit more about this book? Oh, sure. And, and you know, of course, a lot about this with your great book. 
So the Startup Playbook is a, uh, is a go-to resource for any first-time entrepreneur interested in creating and building a new startup company. Um, it's, it's a guidebook that covers everything from whether founding a startup is right for you to how to vet your idea, create your company, build a team, uh, and, and, and ultimately launch a successful product or service. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, we we think we think of it as an easy to read book and an easy to reference book um, for first time entrepreneurs. And how how did the idea of uh, of writing a book uh, come together? I mean, well, because writing a book it takes a lot of time, a lot <laughs> yes, of brain power. Yeah. Yes, it, it took us a long time. It's a lot of it because we didn't know what we were doing, but. The, um, so, uh, between my, my co-author, um, Roger Pargava and myself, um, we've started many companies. Um, uh, Raj has started even, even more companies than me. Um, and we've advised, uh, I, I'd say upwards of two or 300 companies between us. Um, maybe even more than that. And we, we started to, we started, we've, we, we recognize that we've, seen the same mistakes made by so many companies and so many of the mistakes are are really pretty straightforward um and 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 rather than keeping our scope to advising companies who we meet with um we said why don't we write all this stuff down and we can get this information out to more to more people quickly um, and and our our real goal is to get it out to as many people as possible. That's why we sell the book for ninety nine cents right now. So it's you know we we're not we're not we're not out to make money, as you know, right? Publishing doesn't equate to making money. Um, but to get these basic ideas down, so people can optimize their journey. You know, the odds are against are against the founder. It's just there's so much that can go wrong. And we believe that we can take a large percent of that, uh, of, of those, those, uh, errors and issues off the table. Then, then entrepreneurs can optimize their path and put their odds, put the odds of success back in their favor. Got it. Got it. That's a, that's fantastic. Uh, Will that, that you've done that. And I mean, you know, with, with the advice that you give in the book, with all the mentorship that you provide to your portfolio companies, as well as to, to the ones of these different organizations that you're a member of. I mean, what, if you had to go back in time, uh, well, what, what, what kind of advice would you give to your younger self uh, when it comes to fundraising or acquisitions? I think that the, <laughs> that's a, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I, I'll break them in two pieces because I think they're I think they're very very different things. I yeah. um, in terms of fundraising, you know, most angels and venture capitalists tend to to and I didn't know this at the time early on is is that they have models in their heads about um, what makes a good company and what makes a bad company, what makes a good team. A uh, bad team, a good idea, a bad idea, and um, they're not uniform. So one, you can find, um, go out and look for people to fund you who have a model that's close, already closest to what you what you offer, the kinds of products, the market you're going at, the kind of team you have, the idea you have, and and so forth. 
um, it'll make it a lot easier rather than trying to do a scattershot approach to every VC and on the planet. So customize your look. Um, if there still is no one in that set of potential funders that work, don't hesitate in changing your look. If, if the general feedback, feedback you get from funding from funders is that you don't have enough experience on your team, go get more experience on your team. Don't fight at that level. It's just not worth it. Um, build the team that you, uh, that gives you the best opportunity to raise money. And ultimately, the most important thing is, is if we, we find that in, in general, what, what the advice that VCs are giving small companies is move fast, move fast, move fast, take more money, take more money. And, and we believe that getting to where you're going fast is really important. But that does not, that doesn't necessarily mean you should move fast in everything you do. In some things you do, if you move slower and do better, then it actually will optimize the amount of time it'll take to get to your ultimate goal. So, so for example, if you get to product market fit early, um, you will find somebody to fund you. Right. With, yeah. If you can get if you can get to product market fit without funding, you will find somebody to fund you. So so think about that. I, I, I stress to to entrepreneurs to think about that um, and to myself, by, by my younger self, to your original question. Um, if you can get to that point, then everything gets a whole lot easier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and well, I guess for the. For the folks that are listening, uh, what, what is the best way to reach out to you and say hi? Oh, well, our, uh, our website is startup-playbook.com, but you can also find us on uh, Twitter and at Founderbook, F-O-U-N-D-E-R-B-O-O-K, or uh, on Facebook at, at The Founderbook, um, or just look me up on LinkedIn. I'm Will Herman. Fantastic. Well, Will, it has been an honor to have you on the Dealmaker Show, and thank you so, so much for, for everything. I, I, I know that a founders probably got a ton of value, and I can tell you that I did. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Alejandra. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening, and see you at the next episode.